Your mission, should you choose to accept, is to finish watching the next three editions of Mission Impossible. We're going to break them down on episode 84 of the podcast. Cue the music. Welcome, everyone, to the Entertainment Buffet Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Prosek. And I'm another one of your hosts, Jessica Quaz. Jess, we're back. Uh, talking about the good old Tom Cruise wanting to kill himself on camera for us. Yes, back. <laughs> talking about that crazy, crazy man. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, so... Uh, if you guys listened to uh, episode 82 of the podcast, we broke down Mission Impossibles 1, 2, and 3. Um, we did a little break to talk about the Emmys, and now we're going to go through Mission Impossible 4, 5, and 6 of the series. Um, so Jess, uh, we had a, a little bit of a, 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 a bad mission last time we tried to record this edition. <laughs> yeah, we failed our mission. I'm really <laughs> mad about it still. We were disavowed. <laughs> um, it ha- you know, sometimes in the podcast world, you get those technical difficulties where you're just, your laptop craps out. And <laughs> that's yeah. what happened for me. And I was very <laughs> upset. <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> the reason why this episode didn't get to you sooner is we recorded it quite a bit ago, pretty close to when the first one uh, we recorded it, and we literally recorded an hour's worth of content, and we were on the last movie. We were talking about the sixth one, you know, kind of wrapping things up. Uh, And yeah, for the first time in like the three so years that Jess and I have been podcasting together, one of our computers, Jess's computer, went out and unfortunately lost her side of the audio file. And I highly doubt you guys would want to hear an hour of just me talking about Mission Impossible without Jess's half of the conversation. That could actually be really entertaining. Like the listener could pretend to be me and like engage in a conversation with you. You know? <laughs> they they hear me saying things yeah. and then there's just gaps and then me laughing at like you cracking a joke. <laughs> it could be like an interactive podcast situation. Actually, I yeah. Think so we guess like... what Jess brought up? Right. <laughs> Let's pretend to be here. It's like a role playing. I think we had a missed opportunity there. Our bad. Oh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're back and we're talking about uh, these next three movies and um, theoretically, I think what many believe are the best three movies of the series so far all right so we're gonna jump right in and just like the previous movies i took plenty of notes when i was watching these um uh especially not only did i watch them for the when we originally were going to record this but enough time passed where i was able to watch these three in particular again because i love them um but yeah so first we're going to be talking about the fourth edition in the mission impossible franchise which is mission impossible ghost protocol 
this was released uh, December of 2011. It was directed by Brad Bird. Um, for those who think that name is familiar, he also directed Iron Giant, uh, The Incredibles movies, uh, things like that. So very, very uh, well done uh, director that's made some really good movies. Um, at this point in the series, you know, uh, we knew that the original started in 96, but now we're in 2011. Tom Cruise is now 49 years old. He started when it was only 34. Uh, <laughs> he's 49. Um, and yeah, this was, uh, it was also produced by J.J. Abrams, which he directed the third one, which he will continue to, uh, be on board as a producer. And you can kind of tell... Uh, where we left off in the third one, uh, they kind of found their footing with the franchise and what it was about, uh, the tone and such. And you'll see from this one going forward that they, I think they got a good handle on the series. You know, we talked all about the second one being just a really bad John Woo movie, action movie, uh, early 2000s. Mission Impossible um, yeah. Face Off, as I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so this one i will admit uh i did uh besides fallout this is the only other one i had saw in theaters um <laughs> this will really show you like the time and like where my mind was at uh, i was in college uh, and the only reason i saw this in theaters is because if you went and saw it in imax before the movie they were going to show you like a 10 minute preview of the dark knight rises <laughs> wow i do remember that being a major thing at the time yeah yeah and so like obviously you know dark knight was one of my favorite movies and they were dark knight rises was coming out the following summer so like hey if you go see ghost protocol you'll see like the opening scene which would eventually be like the infamous scene with bane in the plane um <laughs> so i was like you know what let's go see that and then, you know, let's see how this Mission Impossible movie is. And then, <laughs> luckily, my friend and I were pleasantly surprised it was a lot of fun because we went in with very low expectations. We paid IMAX prices to see a preview for another movie, stayed for this movie, still had fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, Jess, uh, Ghost Protocol, um, before we kind of dive into more of the details of it, what were your first impressions of this one? So, I definitely agree with you that it seems like it's found its footing and the foundation for, like, the rest of this franchise, which is so interesting that, like, the fourth movie is where the franchise has, like, this <laughs> renaissance. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, and it works very well and continues to work. Um, yeah, it's just, like, the action and the choreography and the shots are just on a completely different level as the first three. Um, and I don't know if it's because of J.J. Abrams. I don't know what that can be attributed to if it's because of Brad Bird. But there is something that shifts in a way that is so well done, but also works with what the first three movies were doing. So that's what's interesting. It's not like a complete overhaul. Um, and it's very interesting, too, that this movie came out in 2011, which doesn't feel like all that long ago but it was a decade ago almost <laughs> yeah um and it's it's held up super well like even the technology mm -hmm. in it and the action and the stunts um have held up super well within the last nine years yeah there's a lot of arguments to be made um and 
I think there's different movies in this franchise that people argue can be the best. There's a lot of people that argue that this one's the best. And one of the big reasons is one of the big stunts in the film, which we'll get to. But uh, yeah, uh, I think like what you were saying, Jess, I think it was a perfect combination of uh, a, a director like Brad Bird um, taking what J.J. and Tom uh, Cruise kind of laid down in the third one and building off of those. And a uh, couple things that uh, are turning points in the franchise. One is, you know, the, the third movie... Uh, Ethan was uh, either getting married or just married. I'm trying to remember. I think he was just married to Michelle Monaghan's character. And obviously that whole movie was a glorified uh, damsel in distress movie. I hate to say it. Uh, and Tom Cruise apparently laid down the rule like, no more in this series will we do a damsel in distress. Which I think is great. Um, there are still different instances where usually a male character is uh, in distress and someone has to save them. But I was really glad to hear, um, I don't know if it was like Tom made a rule with the writer or with Brad Bird or with JJ or whatever it was, but I think he pretty much saw that like based on where the first three films had kind of been, like we got to move on from that plot device. So that was big, you know, a big improvement moving forward, not relying on that shtick absolutely because even the first and second one did rely on that the third way more so because now it's like his wife he's got to save um it just felt like a has been trope you know like we've seen it Mm. before this is nothing really new i did enjoy the third one mostly for philip seymour hoffman's character but you're right like the the plot of the damsel was nothing fresh nothing exciting so I think in terms of feminism, it's amazing. That's great. But also in terms of story, that's also really great because it pushes mm-hmm. the characters and the plots to be something more unique and stronger. Um, and I, I think that that probably had a lot to do with it too. And I will say I did very much enjoy the Paul Patton character. And I did very much enjoy how different she was from, let's say, like, Sandy Newton's character in the second one where mm. she's just doing her job. Like she's just here to work. <laughs> like that's it. Yeah. She's got a job to do. Um, and that's all she's going to do. Like I, I, I enjoyed that more and I found her character more memorable because of that, because she was also a hero and doing her own things in her own right. Yeah. Which interesting thing about her character and kind of her character's arc is uh, it was kind of a role reversal because you know we were just talking about um damsel in distress another uh kind of key plot point that people rely on too much in movies which is you know what they call like fridging the wife or the girlfriend usually they'll kill them or hurt them in some way to where it gives the motivation for the male character to do the thing um and they actually did that for paula Patton's character um, but the man that she loved was the one that got fridged. One of the opening scenes of the movie is with Josh Holloway, which um, I mainly know him. I'm like, oh, he's one of those guys from Lost, which uh, I only saw a few episodes of. Yeah, I'm in the uh, exact same boat as you. <laughs> as like, yeah. JJ is a part of this movie and Lost. <laughs> Yeah. And so in the opening scene, it seems like he's going to be like an integral part of the team. You know, he is kind of like a badass little moment here and there. And then, boom, he's 
taken out and little did we know it's like kind of a fridging uh, of a man for a female character and uh, where she would go the rest of the movie so that was kind of a nice reversal not that I think that people should still rely on that trope but uh, I'm at least glad that like you're saying it's like she was more memorable and felt like she was in more control she's doing her job she's part of the team um and not just uh you know someone to like avenge or someone to rescue yeah exactly and it didn't you know play into some like weird romantic storyline like oh now she's wide open to be with the male character because her her lover is dead which i Mm. appreciate as well it's interesting though it's very like this is where my brain goes it's very like 2011 (laughs) to have paula Patton in that role because like i just think like no offense to her i i I don't know her personally but like i just think of robin thick and blurred lines because they were like married and they oh really (laughs) yeah i i mean that's just like my pop culture brain but like i see her and i think of robin thick and blurred lines and how we were all really fascinated with that song and looking back that was a disgusting mark on pop culture um (laughs) and then his follow-up album to that was called for paula and it was a bunch of songs to her because he cheated on her and felt bad about it so more you know (laughs) (laughs) that's that's what i thought about while watching mission impossible 4 um i also have to say and this is small but i really appreciate this at one point paula Patton's about to do i forget what because it's been a minute since i've seen these now but she's about to do some real action she's about to go in on something and before she starts running and fighting and doing her thing she takes off her high heels and goes for it (laughs) And I have to say, one of my biggest gripes with, like, action movies that women are in is them running and doing intense things in heels. I can barely walk downstairs in heels, so don't tell me you're going to fight in heels. So to see her rip them off and then get into action got me so excited. (laughs) Yeah, and... uh... Actually, something I did notice with a character in one of the other movies as well, uh, later one of these. So it's it's funny uh, that that became like, I wonder if that's something that they decided like, yeah, well, that's not a thing we're going to do. We're not going to pull, um, even though this was years before, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard in Jurassic World, right. where she was doing all these insane running scenes in heels. That drove which me crazy. Is like, Come on. It made me hate the whole movie. <laughs> but you're right. They do it again later. And I definitely clocked it. And I was definitely excited about it because it was the de- yeah. another female <laughs> character. And to me, that is just like the most realistic part of Mission Impossible is she takes her heels <laughs> off before she does stuff. Like, thank you. Yeah. So a couple other notes about this one. Uh, This is the only movie that Ving Rams isn't really a supporting character in this. He is just at a cameo in the end. Uh, So the only one in the series that he's not fully in. Uh, However, who does return to the series and become more of an integral role is Simon Pegg, uh, who he was more of just like a supporting like few scenes in Mission Impossible 3. But they bring him in. He's a field agent now. He's still providing some great comic relief. Um, I think he works with Tom Cruise really well. 
towel because uh, Tom Cruise is clearly the uh, the veteran and like more badass and does all the crazy stunts and like Simon Pegg is like the new uh, he's like the tech guy who was able to be qualified for the field and uh, I think it's a great dynamic also great growth of his character from where he was in the previous movie um, also, this is where they brought in, uh, for something that was a little bit uh, controversial, they brought in Jeremy Renner, um, and they were kind of gearing him up to be, like, the quote-unquote replacement for Tom in the Mission Impossible franchise, which, um, as we see <laughs> nine years later, not really a thing. Um, because uh, from what I understand, and I don't know this like fully but um somewhere uh during the filming you know i think there was uh, a time where either tom and like the director i think they were trying to see like you know something about this like isn't working i think they were just realizing that the whole idea of trying to kind of uh <laughs> slide things over to Jeremy Renner felt weird. And so that's where Tom brought in Christopher McQuarrie, uh, who um, had written on a lot of films from him. He's uh, most notable. He won the best original screenplay for usual suspects in the nineties, but he was also a writer director um, started writing and kind of almost being like Tom Cruise's personal writer on a lot of movies like Valkyrie and I think Jack Reacher and some other ones where he would kind of come in and, and fix things that Tom needed help with, uh, which what a gig to get. Right. Uh, <laughs> and he's the guy that we'll talk a little bit more later. He would take over as the director for five and six. So interesting that he kind of came into four, kind of helped fix some things and um, the idea that they were thinking Tom was getting too old because he's 49 and like, let's maybe give the series to Jeremy Renner, which it's funny, like 2011, they're trying to give him Mission Impossible franchise. Also, I just looked it up. It was 2012 when they were trying to give him the Bourne yes. franchise. I was just going like... to say, like, that's really <laughs> strange because yeah. he was like the Bourne replacement guy. That didn't end up working. And before that, they tried to have him be the Mission Impossible replacement guy. And that didn't yeah. work either. So, and... I don't know. Poor Jeremy. He's <laughs> yeah. not quite and then like, And then, yeah, like around six months after this comes out, like he's going to be Hawkeye in the Avengers. And then he's going to be in all of those movies. So it's just so interesting for like Jeremy Renner kind of had like this uh, renaissance where... <laughs> <laughs> uh, where they wanted to kind of have him take over franchises for older actors. But um, yeah, that didn't work. And they realized like, no, we can still kind of piece this together and he could still be a character, but like, he's not going to take over for Tom. Um, like Tom's like and Ethan Hunt are like the heart of the series. And so interesting note on that. Um the villain in this is not really anyone that's noteworthy. You know, we, we had a lot of praise for Philip Seymour Hoffman in the third one. Um, it's not anyone that uh, is... They're not in it that much, this villain. And also, it's just very generic. Um, and so, what I liked is... Opposed to it just being about a villain... One of the key things that worked for me in this one was it's more about 
the team mm-hmm. and like the conflicts they have as a team and obviously like what the th- title of the movie is ghost protocol which is um they're blamed for an issue that happens in the movie and like the entire imf mission impossible force is uh disavowed and so pretty much uh tom cruise jeremy renner paul Patton, simon Pegg, uh they're in like this carrier train and it's just like look whatever we have in this train and like what we have with each other like we are the imf basically like there's no backup there's no one to help uh extract us from dangerous situations like we're all on our own and there's conflict between the team and i think it was just something that really made uh it work because instead of being about just the villain or like damsel in distress this one focused more on the conflict within the team uh working together as a unit to try to save the day yeah i would say the villain is probably like the least memorable part of this movie um just because like you said it's more focused on the team and that makes for a very like interesting other layer of conflict on top of like fighting a villain or getting to a villain. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that much more than your typical like good guy versus bad guy situation. And I would say too, I mean this in like the best way possible. The plot is actually sort of convoluted, but it almost just doesn't matter. Like I, that's how I felt watching it. Like at times I was like, okay, wait, (laughs) how'd we get here again? Like, what does this guy mean? Whatever. It was, but it was still like incredibly enjoyable to watch because of the dynamics of all the characters coupled with like this new type of action and choreography and shot composition in the franchise that like to me, and I very rarely feel this way about movies, like the plot didn't matter so much. Like I was just having a great time Uh and I enjoyed this like weird almost like isolation of like they're on their own they only have so many resources uh they can only do this like a very narrowed way and they you know tom cruise's character can't just rely on like the whole backing of of a group huge group of a government official coming for him it's just like him and four people and that's it and that's what was really interesting and fun to watch yeah um which uh, to kind of talk about some of the stunts in this movie, or like, let's just talk about like the big stunt in the movie. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the tallest building in the world, if I'm correct. And uh, yeah, in Dubai. And uh, <laughs> it's just amazing. And I'll never forget seeing that on the IMAX uh, oh, screen. Yeah, I bet that was gorgeous. And there's a couple things I enjoyed about this sequence. One is it's clearly something that they used in advertising to to uh, get people to come to the theater to see, like, look at this crazy thing that Tom Cruise is doing. And um, it's not the big final thing, you know, it's in the second act and kind of around the middle of the movie, which the reason why I appreciate this is like, you know, like, let's think about some of the big movies that uh you know, big action movies that come out nowadays, such as like the Marvel movies. It's usually, you know, some action sequences here and there. And then like it all leads to a really big action sequence, which is fine, but it becomes formulaic, especially when they reveal 
what some of the final sequences look like. So they knew that by showing this in the previews, like people know it's coming. Don't save it for the very end because it's not like a secret. Um, it's something that's in the middle. And then there's still some great action later on. Um, there's a lot of uh, kind of tense things like they're juggling like three little things right at the end to try to, you know, stop the bomb and blah, blah, blah. And it's it's a lot of fun. It's very entertaining. But I just appreciated that um, not only is it uh, in the middle of the movie, but also they uh, kind of sprinkled in some comedy with it. Mm-hmm. Um like, yes, Tom Cruise and Ethan do these crazy things, but he's also not perfect at them. Um, like, there's a moment where <laughs> he is basically trying to swing back down to the way he came, and he's like, it's not quite long enough. And Jeremy Renner's like, it's too short. And, like, Tom Cruise is just like, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the glove that he's using to climb the wall is kind of, like, malfunctioning. And so it's just the way that they're able to blend uh, entertainment, suspense, uh, jokes. Like, it's just, this is how action should be done. I think people should take note of this, and that's why I'm glad this similar pattern kind of continues for the next couple movies where they put in these sequences that may not always be big towards the end. They may be big in the middle, big in the beginning. You don't know, but it's just awesome to watch. Yeah, and this being my very first time watching this whole movie, going into it, I knew that that happened because it was such a big deal at the time. And still is. It's one of those sort of iconic moments when you think of the whole franchise, even if you haven't seen it. So, I, like you said, we knew it was coming. It was everywhere. It was in the marketing. But it was still incredibly entertaining to watch. And as someone who hates heights, I was also very tense watching it, just knowing, <laughs> like, I knew Tom Cruise survived and he's fine and alive. But it was still just like... How? I can't even stand next (laughs) to the window out there. Like, that's horrifying what you're doing. And so I think it was just like the appreciation of the practicality of it all also is what makes it so enjoyable, even if you've seen a clip of it a million times. It's still fascinating to watch. And you're right, it's not the only action sequence. It's probably the biggest in terms of the scale and what the production did. But there were just so many more fight sequences or action sequences or car crashes or whatever that were just so beautiful that it was like they're all sort of equal in a way because they all look stunning. This one just so happens to be on the world's tallest building and Tom Cruise mm-hmm. just happens to be running on it. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say it was... Definitely, like, the highlight of the movie, just, again, because of what they did and how they pulled it off. Yeah, for sure. Um, And, yeah, so, anyway, uh, kind of wrapping up this movie, uh, one thing I I forgot to mention before, um, a through line from the third movie was, yes, Michelle Monaghan's character was the wife. And uh, something that they kind of teased throughout the movie is that she may have been killed, which, like, I think for some people who watched the third one were watching it and kind of like, wait, so we spent all movie trying to save her and now she's going to, like, die off screen. 
um, only to reveal at the end uh, that she's still alive. She's just in hiding and like really only Tom Cruise knows where she is. And uh, like they just can't be together because of what happened with the last one. So um, uh, for those who are following along, that's where they kind of like left that story. Uh, but yeah, overall, clearly uh, out of the first four, this is the best one. Um, so like uh, uh, my current ranking of the series from the four that we've discussed is the worst one is two. Uh, then the original, then three, and four is the best. Yeah, I would completely agree with that lineup. Um, yeah, just because of the quality is pretty apparent that fourth is the best one out of the first four, <laughs> and the second one is the worst quality. And yeah, <laughs> I would say absolutely one follows right behind two, three, and then four. Um, yeah, completely agree with you. All right. Well, uh, that was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Now we're going to move on to the fifth movie in the series, which is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation um, that came out in 2015. This one was directed by, previously mentioned, Christopher McQuarrie. Um, at this point, Tom Cruise is now 53. <laughs> uh, remember when we, Remember when we thought he was too old for the one that came out four years prior? <laughs> uh, well, he's back and doing even crazier things. Um, yeah, so this one, uh, Ving Rhames is back. Uh, Jeremy Renner comes back. Uh, more of kind of a supporting role. Uh, Simon Pegg is back. And uh, we introduce uh, Alec Baldwin's character, who is a uh, CIA uh, person that is after Tom Cruise. And um, we introduce a character that's going to be uh, in the next two films, which is uh, Rebecca Ferguson. So um, before we kind of dive into more details, um, that is a rundown of some of the information. And one thing that uh, I also have to mention that kind of repeats from the last film is... <laughs> Um, Ghost Protocol was basically like the entire IMF was disavowed. In the fifth one, pretty much the same thing happens where uh, the IMF is disavowed and like under investigation by the CIA. And so Tom Cruise is pretty much on his own. So they kind of repeat <laughs> that storyline. Um, so what did you think of both that plot point and just kind of first impressions of Rogue Nation? Um, so overall, I think it's similar to four where it's just the, the action is more elevated. The choreography is a little more elevated than four. Um, the stakes feel a lot higher than four for some reason, even though you're right. Like it's similar situation where Ethan is trying to fulfill a, a mission while also kind of being hunted for being a, a quote-unquote, you know, bad guy. And I think that, again, is a very interesting layer. Um, I will say, though, that Alec Baldwin's character just stuck out so much for me because, as opposed to everyone else in the film, it just felt like there's Alec Baldwin in Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like his 30 rock character is here <laughs> like and now he runs the cia so it was a little difficult to be intimidated by him or feel like oh wow we can't like this character he's gonna ruin it for ethan because it was just it was just alec baldwin there um so I, I don't know i didn't find that to be that intense or 
it wasn't something I was super worried about. In fact, I kind of found myself almost annoyed with him because it was just, Mm -hmm. he was just there. Um, Uh, Yeah, I agree. I think that Alec Baldwin was someone that he's been doing so much comedy that to just kind of thrust him into this role, uh, which has some comedic stuff, but like you said, kind of like an authoritative, we're supposed to hate him. Uh, it, it just, it felt weird. You know, um, we, we talked about in the first one, John, uh, um, John Voight had like resting villain face. And then, you know, we had the older kind of character with Anthony Hopkins. And then the third one, we had like Lawrence Fishburne. And so like then, uh, for a brief moment in the fourth one was Tom Wilkinson. And so then they had uh, Alec Baldwin. It's like, they always want to have kind of like an older, like authoritative character in some ways. Sometimes they're the villain in some fashion, but it just felt weird. And like you said, it stuck out because it's Alec Baldwin. You know, Mm -hmm. I think if they would have given this role to perhaps a lesser known actor or maybe someone who's more known for villainous characters, then it would have served better. I think that's that what stuck out is just like, this is Alec Baldwin. Yeah, exactly. I think, I don't know. Like if it, see, I, it, I think it did work with like Lawrence Fishburne or Tom Wilkinson. I, John Voight, I just don't like, so I won't say I worked with him. <laughs> but like, it was just something about like, maybe because it was, so similar to his like actual 30 rock character where he's like you know like speaking like really low and slow and he's trying to be like a badass it's like i it, in my mind i'm seeing that as the parody of in in 30 rock <laughs> so i don't find it to be intimidating you know i don't know it just yeah. didn't it just didn't work and you know no offense to alec baldwin but it was just alec baldwin being alec baldwin in mission impossible like I, it just, I don't know. For me, but, like, it wasn't... I would say that's my least favorite part of the entire movie. However, it definitely was not enough to, like, ruin the entire movie for me. Had he been a much bigger character, maybe it would have overshadowed a lot. But, like, he didn't... He wasn't the end-all be-all for this movie, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I did really like the addition of Rebecca Ferguson's character and... Just, you never knew what she was up to, you know? She's kind of, sometimes she's super shady, sometimes we think she's with us, sometimes she's just completely on her own. Um, she was fascinating and added a lot more, just not knowing whose side she was on, if she was just on her own side looking out for herself, or if she's part of a team. Um, she also mm-hmm. takes her heels off right before she's about to do an action <laughs> moment. And I loved that. That made me so happy. Um, but yeah, again, I just liked that similar to the Paula Patton character. She's, she's just getting, she just has a job to do. Like she's just trying to work <laughs> and that's it. And, um, I appreciated that just seeing, um, even though there is some sort of like, I don't know romantic vibes between her and Ethan. It's not focused on so much that it's like, ooh, this hot girl that Ethan likes, she also does action. That's cool. Like, she's yeah. completely doing her own thing, and maybe they they kind of have a thing. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I, I agree that I, I enjoyed the introduction of Rebecca Ferguson's character, which we were talking about in the fourth one, no longer supposed to have female... Uh, damsels in distress well her introduction 
Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, is the damsel in distress, and she has to save him. You know, like, he still does badass things, but, like, if she didn't help him, he probably would have been killed right then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, like, I thought that that was a great switch, um, that she had to be the one to save him. And um, they do have... Uh, like sort of a love thing, but uh, like you said, it's it's not super obvious. It's kind of just like vibes and like a tension between them. Um, I, I heard a very interesting thing on another podcast um, where someone talked about, I, I think it was either Christopher McQuarrie or Tom Cruise talking about like the Ethan and uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character, how um, if you really look at kind of like all the scenes where they interact throughout the movie, um, you know, the, uh, the interrogation where she saves them, that's kind of like the meet cute. Uh, <laughs> and then like when they're at the opera and like fighting and trying to save like the one prime minister, it's like their first date, you know, at the opera. And then like, oh, then they had like a rocky road where they had like the motorcycle bike chase together. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then like at the end, you know, they have to work together to kind of uh, topple uh, the villain, Sean Harris and the syndicate. So I thought it was so interesting to look at it that way because like, you know, they never kiss, but they do have a lot of kind of like an action version of like romantic beats. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if that's like a Christopher McQuarrie, like in the writer's thing or Tom Cruise's idea. But like once someone pointed that out to me and I watched it again, I'm like, I see what they're doing, you know, and I like that they're not rushing it because we one of the biggest things we hated about the second one was how rushed they did Tom Cruise and Tandy Newton. It was just like they meet each other, they hook up and all of a sudden they're like in love mm -hmm. and they're thrust in this situation. Whereas like she's a straight up agent for um, MI6 right. and she's undercover and like you said, she's got a job. She's a badass. Sometimes their things intertwine. They conflict. And so she feels like a fully formed character, whereas like Tandy Newton felt like more of an object um, that they wanted to be a character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it was a disservice to Tandy Newton and that character. Um, and I think what's interesting about this movie and these this situation is it like you said, it can read like an actual like rom-com points <laughs> or it totally doesn't. Like it's kind of like you see what you want to see. If you see like this like romantic tension that's there, cool. If not, maybe she's just manipulating his ass to get stuff done. You know, it's like mm -hmm. an ink blot almost, which I think is really much more fascinating than your typical like, oh, wow, they fell in love and now they're doing action and now he's got to save her. That's boring. What's interesting yeah. is like, we don't know what she's up to. Why did she help him? Why is she not helping him now? Like, do they like yeah. each other? Or is she just trying to get something? Or what? Like, oh, what's there's happening? a double cross. A double and cross. Like, then they're together, and so yeah, it's it, 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 it's a lot of fun. Um, so uh, a couple other things I wanted to bring up. Yeah, I mentioned earlier the CIA disavows the IMF. Um, so like the kind of one of the conflicts for this one is you know Ethan is obsessed with finding the syndicate which is uh led uh, uh he's led to believe that it's a group of a bunch of disavowed agents across the world who are presumed dead who are all kind of band together and just like causing terror throughout the world and i thought that was a very interesting idea that it's like yeah well 
they've always teased the idea of people being disavowed from the IMF. Well, what if all these agencies just like disavowed people and they were presumed dead? Like, yeah, wouldn't some of them be pissed off? So uh, the reason why Alec Baldwin's character in the CIA are going after Ethan is because they believe that he made up the syndicate. So when it comes to the syndicate, we know uh, we're introduced to Sean Harris, uh, his villain character, in one of the opening scenes, like during the the this is your mission. Should you choose your uh, should you choose to accept it? They did a twist where the syndicate um, kind of infiltrated that mission message. And then like that's where they kidnapped Ethan. Um, so they show you the villain right away. It's not a mystery. We just don't know who he is. We know what he looks like. And I'm curious, Jess, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman has a high bar to clear. But what did you think of Sean uh, Harris as the villain uh, with the syndicate, Solomon Lane? Um, so I think that introduction is amazing and it brings this intensity right away and it draws you in you want to know like what's he up to what's going on because you like you said the beginning where ethan gets his mission and we know the iconic line should you choose to accept it we're used to the formula of that and for them to play around with that and kind of pull the rug out from under us and actually have the villain infiltrate that and kidnap him was really different and really fascinating and kind of felt like out of left field. So you're in it right away. Mm-hmm. So I think that introduction alone really stood out from maybe every other villain moment we had in this in this series because it just was so different. I will say I was more into the full idea and... Um, the full formation of the syndicate as opposed to Sean Harris's character, because I found the idea of a huge group of villains much more terrifying than the guy that's kind of running it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, it's almost like the fake news of it all. Like you don't know what to believe (laughs) with these people. So are this, is the syndicate uh, actually like, terrible people or are they like ethan where they are presumed to be villains um so i just found that dynamic a lot more fascinating than this like one particular character i will say what i did very much enjoy about this villain was that he wasn't so much involved in the action as he was in mind games of it all um so we're not seeing him and ethan really like fight and go at it Instead, it is this mental um, dynamic between the two and fighting each other in that way, which I found to also be very fresh and different for a typical villain in this franchise. So, Jess, what you're saying is you didn't want Sean Harris and Tom Cruise to fight on a beach where they ride their motorcycles at one another, leap into the air and tackle one another, and then those motorcycles explode. You know, the second one handled that so well (laughs) that we don't need that ever again. It's iconic, and the second one, let's not even try. You can't ever top that one. Leave it where it is. Yeah, I... So these Mission Impossible movies are all over the world uh, where these ones took place. Uh, they're, they're in Vienna, Austria. They're in Casablanca, Morocco, and they're also in London. So I, I, as always, I enjoy that they 
don't stick to like the same kind of places that these take place all over the world. But um, yeah, before we wrap up this one, we got to talk about the action sequences um, because we love to learn what Tom Cruise did um, in real life. So uh, first I wanted to bring up the underwater sequence where uh, he, it was kind of like an ode to the first one where like he had to sneak in and like replace a chip or whatever and uh but instead of him dangling like he's going underwater and uh yeah so he learned to hold his breath up to six minutes underwater uh jesus christ <laughs> i don't even think i can hold my breath for a full minute yeah and he's 53 <laughs> and I'm, like half yeah, i'm half his age and i i don't know how long i can even hold my breath for jesus christ yeah so which you know there's clearly parts where you know they had to kind of fill things in probably with like special effects and whatnot. And I don't know how they filmed a lot of the underwater sequence. I just do know based on research that um, in order to do some of the underwater sequences, yeah, he, the, he wanted to learn how high, <laughs> how long he could do it. And he trained and prepped and like learned from experts and, and he learned how to be underwater for six minutes holding his breath. Jesus. Maybe there's something to Scientology after all. Like, you know, now I'm convinced. This sounds, it sounds like a good thing. That's crazy. Like, that's just, I mean, just the way he pushes himself is just so fascinating. And I will say, a, a, like, the Scientology of it all, of course, yes, yes, yes. But Tom Cruise is such a fascinating character because, like, no one loves movies as much as Tom Cruise. <laughs> And he does all these things because he loves movies so much uh-huh. and he wants them to be so realistic and good mm-hmm. that he does things like learns how to hold his breath for six minutes straight or run of a run off a building. Like whatever. Yeah. Whatever he feels like doing, whatever he's gotta do, he'll do it to make the movie good. And that's just fascinating. It's insane. Yeah. So um some other action sequences. One that I really liked, and I don't know if there's any like crazy stunts that he necessarily did, but I loved both the the score, the uh, the way that the scene was laid out, uh, in, in the writing and the choreography, was the awesome scene at the opera. Um, I love that where basically um, they he realizes that someone is trying to um, assassinate the prime minister of Austria. And um, he sees Rebecca Ferguson there, but he also sees another assassin. Um, But then he sees like a third assassin and he fights the one, gets one of the guns, which is like a a, a musical instrument uh, (laughs) uh, disguising as a gun. And there's this awesome moment where he's like aims the gun at like the guy, then Rebecca Ferguson. Then he looks at the prime minister and like he doesn't know what to do. So he shoots the prime minister in the arm so that they miss their shots to shoot him. And I was just like, one, that is just so cool. And then like the fight sequences that he has like up on the scaffolding, like during the show and like while the opera's going, um, you know, him and Rebecca Ferguson are in like these nice outfits for the opera. Um, she's in like this just bomb yellow dress <laughs> and then also <laughs> kicking ass. And like you said, taking off her heels to run across the rooftop. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just thought that entire sequence was so much fun. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it could be, it's like, there's action within this huge sequence. Um, And also what made it really fun to watch too was that at this point, the CIA is after him. He's on his own. He's been disavowed. He brings Simon Pegg into it. But he's, Ethan, on his own, is orchestrating the whole uh-huh. thing. And I think that's also what makes it feel like the stakes are higher because he's doing it on his own. There's no real backup to come exactly. in. Exactly. He's He's got to figure it out. And I think that also adds a lot to it. And then, you know, like this is, I guess, spoilers. But, you know, um, if if you haven't seen it, go see it. But, like, all this happens where, like, he is able to get the prime minister. He shoots him in the arm so that, like, they rush him out. He thinks they're safe. And then only for an explosion to go off and kill the prime minister anyway, like, leaving the theater. I was like, that's that was another example of, like, how uh, genius Sean Harris's character was. That not only did he have like a couple two or three different assassins ready to go one of the assassins was to make sure that rebecca ferguson did her job and then even if that all fails there's a bomb in the car (laughs) it's just like oh fuck like we thought he was gonna save the day and nope still kills the prime minister Absolutely. And that's, again, it's like another rug pulled out from under us where the typical trope is like, he did it. Yay. Everything's fine. And then immediately like, oh, that was all for nothing. (laughs) That was all for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that was one action sequence. There was more, though, one of which was the amazing motorcycle chase uh, in, uh, I believe that was in Morocco, um, where he and, uh, (laughs) where Tom Cruise is doing it without the helmet because he needs you to know that he's doing it. And he's (laughs) doing insane biking where he's like leaning, almost looks like he's sideways on the bike uh, to where like there's one part where he like is leaning so far over on a turn that he like scrapes his knee and it's just like (laughs) you know and like that was probably planned he probably had like a knee pad or whatever but like that entire sequence is so nuts and um, like even just that alone uh, would be like a kick-ass scene, but like we've already named a couple, and there's still one other one we wanted. To, uh, I wanted to bring up. So, yeah, uh, it's funny how in the second movie we made so much fun of that motorcycle sequence because like there's a lot of kind of cheesy action and explosions with it, and like here's a motorcycle sequence that's done well. <laughs> yeah, it was like a redemption motorcycle sequence. <laughs> and it wasn't like nearly as long as the second one, or at least it didn't feel nearly as long as the second one. It was like, okay, yeah, whoops, let's redo it. Um, and yeah, just, I, I like, to me personally, I find situations like that in action movies almost to be like like annoying like I don't need to see another motorcycle chase I get it but for this one it was just done so well and the whole movement of the entire thing where where he was in relation to everything else going on was what made it so fascinating as well Um. like what how he's driving throughout this particular world that he's in right now what's going on around him 
made it so much more exciting than just like your typical run-of-the-mill motorcycle chase yeah it was so thrilling and uh, uh i was watching it with some other people and like during the whole sequence i'm just like he's really doing this he's doing it which is it is insane yeah so wear helmet tom <laughs> the last action sequence i gotta bring up which actually they decided to throw in some trailers and also open the movie with it which is tom cruise hanging off the side of a plane <laughs> um because you know first he tells does the tallest building and then he's like let me just hang off a plane um yeah gotta step it up <laughs> gotta step it up <laughs> and uh What's interesting is I heard in an interview that, like, you know, they had an idea for the sequence. Um, how they do some of these later movies is very interesting. It's like they come up with, like, locations and then action sequences and then, like, a basic story and then kind of piece it together. So they don't always know until, like, partial way through filming and, like, almost into editing what they're going to do with some action sequences. So this one, they're like, ah, well, you know, we put it in the trailer. Like, we can put it at the end, you know. Um, let's just, maybe we'll put it in the ending credits as, like, a fun thing. And then they're like, no, let's just open the movie with it. Like, the fact that they were so willy-nilly about, like, where to put Tom Cruise hanging off a plane. <laughs> <laughs> That probably cost so much money to and film insurance just alone. that scene alone. <laughs> yeah, it's like that, and I, I find that so interesting because one, it's really the first movie that I clocked anyway where the very beginning doesn't relate to how the story ends or anything else to do with the story at all. Um, so that was interesting. And it's just like this casual hanging off an airplane sequence that literally you could have taken out of the movie and it doesn't do anything. Mm. Like it doesn't change the movie at all. But it's just the thrill of watching him do it that is exciting to open the movie with. Just because it's like, let's just get it out of the way. We know why you're here and it's for him to do something nuts. So let's just start it off. Yeah, absolutely. So nuts. But uh, yeah, that is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Um uh, you didn't have anything else you wanted to say for this one, right? Um, I mean, I just, I also find it very interesting that with all these amazing action sequences, at the end, the resolution, going back to the mental warfare of it all, ends with a very intense mind game that is just as fascinating to watch as, like, the motorcycle chase. So I find that to be really interesting about this movie is that they can handle both intense action scenes and just characters talking and playing with each other just as well. And it's just as fascinating. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, note to Jess, just make sure to bring out, uh, take out that other transition because, yeah, I want to keep all this in. Um, yeah. I completely agree because, uh, like I said with uh, Ghost Protocol, I don't think we should always save the big action sequence for the end. And they totally didn't do that with the, this either. They put it at the beginning. They put some other stuff throughout uh, with the motorcycle uh, sequence, the underwater sequence, the opera sequence, all those sequences. And then, like you said, the end is more mind games. And sure, there's still like some fights and some shootouts and such. But for the most part, it's mainly how is he going to outsmart the guy that's been outsmarting him since the beginning? And um, there are like emotional stakes as well. And 
yeah, it just like it's funny because like there even becomes a sequence where like basically he proves to Alec Baldwin that he's innocent and um but then it's still not over because they still got to uh go save Simon Pegg. And so um it's almost like there's a couple different resolutions and uh like you said it's all mental. It's not just a big shootout or a big explosion sequence. It's how can he outsmart the smart? Exactly. And I think that while we know they can handle the big end action sequences very well, it's really cool to see them do something more subdued, but is equally as exciting and entertaining and just as satisfying at the end. Yeah. I think, and that's very interesting too for this franchise. They don't, they're still not relying on tropes anymore. They're, they're pushing it and doing new things and, and challenging the idea of an action movie. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be, why I think I am more like into Mission Impossible as opposed to other action franchises because they do something different, especially four through six. It's something almost a little different every time. And I, I really enjoy that. Absolutely. Continuing to pushing itself even uh, <laughs> 20 some years later. Um, so that is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, um, which my current ranking of this series would then go, as you probably guessed it, second movie is the worst then uh the original movie then three then four which is ghost protocol and then rogue nation at this point is the best of the series yeah i think i'd yeah i'd have to agree with you yeah <laughs> just, just yeah i mean like it's tough be because four and five are so good but five is just like a step better just a little bit more i better. i agree a little more fine-tuned yeah i think it's it's because they took the tone and a lot of the kind of action uh, from four and then uh, brought in someone like McQuarrie, who's known for his writing to kind of fine tune the, the stakes and the story and the drama uh, underneath all of the great action sequences. And then obviously bringing in uh, Rebecca Ferguson and so forth. It just, uh, yeah, so much fun um rogue nation uh the best so far but that's leading us to the final of the series currently um bear in mind they are making seven and eight uh at the same time um uh this is mission impossible fallout um this one came out in 2018 uh also directed by christopher mcquarrie first time a director returned to the director's seat um and he's going to be directing seven and eight as well uh, <laughs> um tom is now 56 and <laughs> and uh simon Pegg is back ving rames is back um Jeremy Renner is not back because he was filming the Avengers Infinity War slash Endgame movies. Um, Alec Baldwin is back, though. Don't you worry. Um, <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson is back. Sean Harris is back. And new additions to the, uh, the cast include uh, Angela Bassett and Henry Cavill. Um, so yeah, Jess, uh, first impressions going into the last movie of the series so far. Okay, so just a little behind the scenes of our podcast. Usually when I, because I'm such a weirdo, I take very extensive notes. Even if I know the topic very well, I will write out a lot of notes. 
for this very specific episode. I did not do that, and I am going off of my first reaction notes while watching it, and I have no other notes. It's just my stream of conscious while um, watching the movies. And I wish you could see these notes because they are so stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, what? Like, I don't even remember what half of these thoughts actually were, but in terms of the cast, my notes are Alec Baldwin seems better, question mark. So apparently he bothered me far less in this movie. I don't know why. Um, then literally right after that, in all caps, I have Angela Bassett did not know she was in this. I was very excited <laughs> about her. Um, and then I have the bathroom fight. Incredible. Henry Cavill is a beast. Uh, I also wrote Vanessa Kirby needs to be in more things. Um, and then I also wrote, and I don't know why I have I couldn't tell you why this happened, but I also wrote, I find myself annoyed with Rebecca Ferguson's character. Um, and that's, that's what I thought about the cast. That's what my, my thoughts were at the moment. Um, I will say though, like, I really do enjoy the, the repeats of having characters come back because as much as it is so enjoyable to have Tom Cruise as a lead, he can't like be it. We need to like I like having the Simon Pegg and the Ving Rames, um, and now Rebecca Ferguson. Like almost it's like seeing your friends again. It's like a happy reunion mm-hmm. where you get excited to see them and it feels more of like an attachment to these people and to what's happening to them. So I just like the bigger role that Ving Rhames specifically had because I just I just really enjoy him. Yeah. Um, um. Oh wait, sidebar, complete sidebar. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I just found this out, and I like literally just found this out a few days ago, and I think it's just the sweetest thing. Um. So in 1993, Ving Rhames. No, I lied. In 1998. Ving Rhames won a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a TV miniseries where he played Don King only in America. Okay. He won. It's um, Golden Globes, 1998. And he actually went on stage and was like, no, (laughs) I'm going to give this award to Jack Lemmon because I don't think, I think he was better. (laughs) And he was the, like, literally, he was like, um, I want to give this to you, Jack Lemon. Come up here. Like, this is yours. And, like, literally was like, no, you take it. Stanislavski said, love the art in yourself, not yourself in the art. And I love the art in all of you here. And is, uh, is Mr. Jack Lemon here? Is he here? Would you please come up here, sir? <laughs> I feel that being an artist is about giving, and I'd like to give this to you, Mr. Jack Lemmon. That is one of the nicest, sweetest moments I've ever known in my life. It was just really sweet, where he's just like, I don't, you you deserve it. It's yours, pal. And then, like, afterwards, Jack Lemmon supposedly was like, no, 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 you take it. Like, I don't, I don't need this. And he's like, no, 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 you take it. No, I want you to have it. And Jack Lemmon, like, yeah, walked away with it that night. But I just, <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. And I just think he's wonderful. <laughs> Good to know. Which one thing that was, uh, you know, we I've been talking about throughout the, the series, which is, you know, um, 
uh, now that I'm, um, what was Tom Cruise was like in his mid thirties for the first film. Now it's 2018. He's, uh, 56, uh, Ving Rhames for this one is 58 feels 58 <laughs> you know <laughs> you know i'm sorry like i and i and i like you said i love him too uh he's great in pretty much everything i've seen him in um but <laughs> it just it's something that like tom cruise we joke he t- he must take the same like serum that like paul rudd and uh jennifer aniston and jennifer lopez like a lot of these people take and like they're just the same age for like 30 40 years um ving right. rames 58 appropriate you know like he (laughs) there's like even a part where like he has to kind of like run and it's just like oh why are you making him run you know like (laughs) like let tom run tom will run for like 20 goddamn straight minutes in a movie like don't make ving ram uh don't don't make him run um and so like i think they kind of keep him stable in most things he's usually like the guy behind the computer now whereas like simon Pegg will be off doing like actual like physical fights and like action you, you know they're both tech guys but they're like let's let's keep ving rams behind the behind the computer uh let's right. <laughs> let's put he's him there almost 60 and he 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 is almost 60. <laughs> yeah so i but i almost like appreciate that juxtaposition of like here's tom cruise we don't know about him but here's a normal human being right <laughs> next to him yeah. and here's real life and i just i appreciate that because I mean, even though, yeah, I mean, he's almost 60. He's still killing it. And Ving Rhames, like, still is doing it. But you're right. He's almost 60. Yeah, and I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. It's just he looks his age, whereas Tom Mm -hmm. looks... 15 to 20 years younger and they're two years apart you know like it's it's, it's mind-boggling yeah. but anyway um so like you were saying i enjoyed that a lot of people came back it seemed like usually people only don't come back because of like film um scheduling conflicts like that's why jeremy render didn't come back um I, I I really liked the addition of Henry Cavill. Um, I think it made me look at him in a totally different way because like he's kind of to some people known as just the guy who plays Superman in the new DC EU movies. Yeah. And um, fun fact behind the scene thing that uh, yeah, <laughs> um, there's a lot of controversy between <laughs> Paramount and Warner Brothers because. Henry Cavill had shot Justice League with Warner Brothers, you know, clean shaven for Superman, um, went off, grew the mustache, uh, had a con- thing in his contract, you know, for the mustache with Paramount doing Mission Impossible Fallout. Some point during the filming, Warner Brothers is like, oh, my God, you know, we need some more stuff filmed for Justice League. Is there any way like can he shave the mustache? <laughs> um, we did the research like it's easier for you to add the mustache uh, in post or for him to grow it back than it is for us to remove it. And Paramount was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like, because they were either going to have to spend the money to add the mustache for some scenes, which they said, like, no, the cameras we're shooting on, like, for the action sequences, that's not going to work at all. Also, we're not going to halt production for, like, three, four weeks for him to, like, grow a damn mustache back. And I just thought it was so funny that these two uh, studios are fighting over the fact over Henry Cavill's facial hair. And we all saw what happened in... I I didn't see Justice League, but I've seen the clips where they had to CGI out the mustache, which I just said, you know what? 
guys, you had millions of dollars. Get what you need to film the first time because you know Henry Cavill's got a busy schedule. He's not just going to drop anything to be ready for your reshoots. Like, shoot it right the first time. Maybe have the script be better. Take longer on the script and you wouldn't have had this problem. And last thing I have to say... Um, Paramount, you made the right decision because that mustache is fucking glorious. <laughs> it really is. He looks so much better with it, I will say. And I, I find that hilarious, too, because I did see Justice League. A lot of it I have repressed and don't care to revisit. But that, I will never forget, was, like, his weird, like, why does his face look like that? I don't understand. And at the time, I had no idea. I just thought... Justice League for funsies was CGIing his face because that I wouldn't put it past him. Um, and so to know that it was actually this really big deal over some dude's upper lip is really funny. Um, and just how much money was writing for both movies over a mustache. Yeah, well, it's not apparently like the the visual effects people like reached out to, I think some people with Christopher McQuarrie kind of like, Hey, like, so here's the deal. And like Christopher McQuarrie, I think was going to be a little bit nicer about it. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll like rearrange some shooting and like, you know, halt it for a few weeks. But then all of a sudden they did the math and like, Oh wait, no, if we halt for a few weeks, that's going to cost like a $3 million or, you know, something <laughs> insane. And, uh, all of a sudden it like reached higher up in the food chain at Paramount. And like, no, no, like keep his fucking mustache. <laughs> and so these two high studios, are, are having to battle over millions of dollars over just a mustache and but like i said i think that mustache is worth a few million dollars because goddamn it looks great um uh, <laughs> sorry for that sidebar but i just find it so funny um and honestly like i said when you see something like justice league and then you see fallout um as a movie just quality wise and also just how he looked in it and everything right decision you know i I would have been really upset if like most of fallout was amazing and then they would have had like a bad cgi adding of a mustache or they would have had to go reshoot stuff and have him shave it or something like it just fallout is amazing and that's all i'm gonna do is be praising fallout honestly um because really the only bad thing i can say about it is i wasn't a fan of alec baldwin in this um alec baldwin okay. is i mean I, I wasn't either but for some reason i felt like he seemed better i don't know why i think it's i wrote a question mark next to it though so i clearly wasn't really solid in that belief well i think it's because he's in less of it and yeah. also he became the secretary of the imf at the end of the fifth one so like he's on their side but there's a sequence where he's in a brief fight with Henry Cavill. And I'm like, this is way too long. This should last two seconds because it's Henry fucking Cavill. The mustache would kill Baldwin alone. Um, <laughs> and like, sure enough, spoilers, he does kill Alec Baldwin by stabbing him. But it just, to me, uh, it like lasted way too long. I'm like, he has no chance against Henry Cavill. Like, we saw him in the bathroom fight sequence where he just, like, cocked his arms like he was loading, the, like, bullets into, like, guns. He's just like, Like, there's a moment in the trailer. Look up the Mission Impossible Fallout trailer, which I love that trailer. Um, there's literally a part where he's just like, huh, huh, you know, like he... <laughs> oh, yeah. And that was, that became a gift. That was everywhere. <laughs> like, I knew that moment 
before I knew anything else about the movie. But it still made going back to like the marketing and seeing these things. It still was so fascinating mm-hmm. to see in the movie itself. And he's just he's a beast. He's a and beast. And I will say, I was one of those people who only knew him as Superman and thought he was a gorgeous human being and that was kind of it. Yeah. And then seeing him in this, it's like it's interesting because Superman you would think would be the thing. You get Superman, you are elevated to a status. But really, I think it was this that mm-hmm. like really solidified him yeah. as being a serious actor and someone actually respected and liked. For sure. Um, so, uh, I, I know we've kind of had some, like, sidebars, uh, but, like, getting back to it, like, where the story kind of, um, this is one of the first movies that, there's been through lines in some of the other movies, but this was the first one where it seemed like it actually was a continuation of the previous movie, which makes sense, same director, um, where... It finished where, like, they caught Solomon Lane, Sean Harris's character. You know, they didn't kill him off. Apparently, Sean Harris wanted to be killed off, not because he didn't like the movies. I think he was just worried that he was going to be strung along into a bunch of them. Um, (laughs) And uh, he's caught. It seems like the syndicate isn't quite, like, done yet, though. Like, they're, um, they're still out there, and now there's, like, some remaining members. They're called, like, the Apostles. Um, And... It's been, I think they say in the movie, two years since the previous movie, like in their timeline. Um, And so they've still been hunting down people involved in the syndicate, these apostles. um, But they're very hard because they're all, you know, disavowed agents. And they kind of kept that going. Um, And uh, they're after someone named John Lark, who they believe is one of the leader of the apostles. Um, they don't know, they only know the name. They don't know like what he looks like um, until Henry Cavill tries to convince Angela Bassett and the CIA that like, oh, I think it's Hunt kind of like similar to the fifth one. Like, I think he is part of the syndicate. You know, I think he snapped and he decided to cause the chaos, but then also save the day from the chaos and um, only to reveal that. Yeah, Henry Cavill is the villain. I liked how they didn't wait too long into the movie to give away that he's the villain. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. they yeah. tried to make it some big twist. Uh, it's actually a very subtle moment where they reveal it, but, like, I just think that I appreciated. Like, they didn't try to do, like, they did in the first one with John Voight, where they wait till the very last action sequence. They reveal it pretty early. There's some stuff where they're kind of together and you're like, well, does Ethan know? Who knows? Is it just the audience? Like, I I thought that was fun. And then sure enough, they trick him and uh, he reveals himself where this was another moment where they kind of made fun of the masks, which is a trope throughout the series is like uh, someone ripping off the mask. And it was like Simon Pegg as Sean Harris's character and then realizes that Henry Cavill gives himself up and like rips off the mask and it's Simon Pegg and he's like, Oh God damn it. You know? <laughs> and I just love that they continue the mask thing, uh, but also kind of make fun of it. Yeah, I agree. And I think again, it's a fun way to play around with, with other tropes of the mask, but then also of the villain revealing that, like you said, he's revealed very early on. It's not like at the very end, it's a big twist. Um, I appreciated that too, and I found that to be way more exciting to watch it like that. Yeah, which 
um, you know, Rebecca Ferguson kind of uh, gets intermingled again. Um, oh, uh, the reason, like, why, like, Ethan thought that, like, she got out of the life, um, but she pretty much had to do these missions to kind of prove herself to, like, get back to the, uh, like, the IMF still. And, um, yeah, I, I, I liked they continued the tension between Rebecca Ferguson and uh, Ethan again, but still at the end of the movie, they haven't kissed yet, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's still heavily implied that they care for each other seemingly in a romantic way. So what do you think about the fact that they've kind of strung this along and like, there's no official like make out sequence, like they're together, you know, there's just kind of still like this, unrequited love type thing going on um i don't mind it because i don't think it's necessary you know like i don't think we need it i don't think it it's not something like we're dying for it's not something that's gonna be a huge plot device really for these movies anyway so i think that's fine and i think maybe why i found myself being annoyed with her character was just because like i want to have a handle on whether or not we can trust her, what her deal is yet, like, what's going on. And I think maybe moving forward, that'll be more solid. Um, but yeah, I just don't, I don't mind what it is. I don't mind that, again, it's like, maybe there's something there, maybe there's not, but that's not why they're here. The two of them are not here for that. They have, they got a, they got work to do, <laughs> and then we'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah, um, I can understand that. Um, I do enjoy that they didn't lean on it too heavily. But I also, I, I, I think I personally enjoy that there's still conflict between them and it's not like a personal conflict. It's like their missions were literally conflicting with one another. And like, they both have their reason for the missions. And uh, I think that, yeah, it, it's, it provides good conflict where two people that care with one another have to do two different types of missions that cross over. Um, so, yeah, uh, another thing, you know, spoiler, uh, is they bring back, uh, for the first time since, like, a cameo in the fourth, but really since the third, Michelle Monaghan's character, um, the long-lost wife of Ethan, um, he kind of has uh, some dream sequences with her where I think he's dealing with the guilt of, like, the life that she has to live now after being with him and, like, the danger he put her in and she's in hiding now. And, um, you know, I thought that they handled this really well. I almost wish that they didn't do the dream sequences because then when the scene reveals that, like, where, like, the, the third act, like, bomb is, is, like, in a camp that Michelle Monaghan is a nurse at it's like, oh, God, Solomon Lane, so fucking smart. <laughs> yeah, which I think it definitely still had that. I, like, I felt that way anyway. But you're right. Like, if they had taken out her at all, like, in the beginning and just had her show up then and we didn't know she was even in it, like, it would have probably been more impactful. Um, I do really like that they brought her back I because they could have easily not have. And she could have just been this kind of, like, lingering thing in the background that we just, like, forget about and move on. I really like that they had her back and we explored it a little bit more. And we explored how he still feels about her and how she's actually doing. Like, is she okay? Mm -hmm. What's going on with her? Um, So I, I really enjoyed that we got closer on her. 
and we get to see what's been going on and how she's doing and how all this plays together. Yeah, I agree. I like bringing her back because it kind of was like one of those things that like, sure, they could have just had that final moment in four where they kind of exchange like a look, just kind of like, I still care about you, but I'm glad you're safe. You know, um, they could have left it there, but they kind of made it, I think, part of Ethan's character arc, whereas like he was feeling guilt. And, you know, of course, at the very end, like he's like profusely apologizing because like she keeps ending up in danger um and she's like yeah but like yes i had to like give up the life i had but like i also learned how strong i am and like i also then found this way of life and she's like um i'm pretty sure she's like married now and with a different guy like they're doctors and they like do kind of like a I think like some sort of like doctors without borders type deal where they like go around to different countries. Uh, they're in like Kashmir at the uh, ending sequence there. And she pretty much says like, I'm happy and like, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm happy that you're out there. I, I, I know that you're out there saving the day, which like Ving Rhames has kind of a monologue to Rebecca Ferguson's like, yeah, they realized they couldn't be together because, like, anytime something was going wrong in the world, like, Ethan felt guilty he couldn't help, but then, like, uh, he also felt guilty about putting her in danger. She felt guilty how he was reacting to the thing, so it's, like, it just made sense. And it for me, I'm hoping this is, like, the final moment for her, just kind of like, hey, I'm fine. You know, do your thing. I'm happy where I am. You know, thank you for what you, you know, made me realize how strong I am. And uh, I think it'd be a great final note for her character in the series. And hopefully we can kind of move on now. And she has a conclusion to her story. I agree. I do really like her and I do like the character. But I do think that this would be like a nice way to kind of wrap it up where they both have a lot of love and respect for each other, but they both realize just it is how it is. And she's happy and she's like safe. And like you said, she had a lot of character growth. So I, I enjoy that for her character and for how Ethan sees it. If it just kind of ends there. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, I just, I really enjoy Michelle Monaghan. And I just, <laughs> I think she's like very pleasant. I don't know. So I wouldn't necessarily mind seeing her again, but I do think this would be like a good note to end it on for them. Yeah. Um, so continuing on, uh, other things that stuck out to me in this movie. Um, one thing was, I feel like, and, and this was never a problem in the other movies by any means, but I feel like the soundtrack really stuck out to me in this one. Um, something about this score and some of the sequences really got me. And like, I, I enjoyed them so much that sometimes when I was writing the last uh, feature I was working on, um, I like to put on soundtracks because they're just in the background and they don't distract me with lyrics to, you know, terribly sing along to. Um, <laughs> um, I loved throwing on this soundtrack. It just is like, you know, it has the ebbs and flows of like intense, but also uh, thrilling. And yeah, it just, I really enjoyed the soundtrack. So I wanted to bring that up because I think it's the best of the series so far. I didn't pick that up, but maybe because it was my first time watching it, I was paying attention to so many other things that I did not pay attention to that. Um, so I would be interested to revisit that and note that specifically, how I react to the music in yeah, it. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um, I loved one of the tropes where 
uh, how they bring Solomon Lane's character back is the only way that Tom Cruise's character can get to this plutonium that uh, he's trying to save the day from is he has to break out Solomon Lane, which he spent all of five trying to put away. <laughs> yeah, and that's fun. like that whole sequence uh, and like that plot point, I think was a lot of fun that uh, it's like out of all the people, like he has to break out the dude he spent all of last film putting away. Um, so yeah, there's that, um, locations in this one, uh, they had some stuff in Paris and also stuff in Kashmir, um, and I believe London as well. Uh, yeah, this, uh, and one other moment that really stuck out to me was most of this movie, there's like little shootouts here and there, but I like that a lot of the action isn't shooting. There is one moment though where uh <laughs> they break out lane a lot of this stuff is happening like motorcycle sequence and all of a sudden uh they open the doors and there's like a cop like right there like writing a ticket and they like look mm-hmm. incredibly <laughs> suspicious and then like these other guys come up the bad guys like they shoot her and they're gonna like kill her the cop and Tom Cruise kind of has to do like almost like a quick draw, like in a Western sheriff moment where he shoots like four guys at once. And I just think that it's like, yeah, we don't need a bunch of shootout sequences, but it's cool to have just a little moment like this where he only does it to defend this cop that was going to get killed. Yeah, that, that was a fun moment. And it was very like, I mean, it's weird to say a simple shootout, but in terms of this movie, I guess it is like just this quick little pew pew moment that was very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, pew pew. Uh, <laughs> pew, pew. <laughs> um, so to list out the insane action sequences uh, we brought up earlier, there's an incredible fight sequence with Henry Cavill loading his arms uh, for punching in a bathroom sequence. Uh, uh, the, it, it's like this movie has a bit of, of all the kinds of action where it's like they have the awesome fight hand to hand sequence. Then they have a motorcycle sequence (laughs) where Tom Cruise does some more riding around without a helmet where he's like going into oncoming traffic and he's in like this super crowded area. They even have a part where his bike hits and he flies over the curb, like into the camera. Um, Yeah. So it's like, they got a motorcycle sequence. Then they also have a scene which, I don't think they advertised at all. And it's just casually towards the beginning where um, he jumps uh, out of a plane uh, really high in the air where they're like above the clouds. And uh, they even have a sequence where Henry Cavill's character gets struck by lightning. And so he has to like float over to him to like help put his like oxygen on in time before they crash into the building that they're like parachuting onto. And it's just like, another insane sequence that they just throw at the beginning of the film as if it's kind of nothing. (laughs) Yeah. It's like super casual that they're falling through an entire storm and have to deal with that on top of like parachuting down, like just whatever. Yeah, exactly. So then there's that. Then, um, when he kind of figures out that it's Henry Cavill, uh, is the villain. There's this long extended, uh, running sequence where this is where, uh, in real life, Tom had to hop from building to building, uh, 
twisted or like broke his ankle or something where he he really messed up his leg uh landing it and they had to stop shooting for like however long because like he legitimately got injured um but that long running sequence is so fun and crazy like there's little gags where like he's running and then all of a sudden he's in the middle of like this big church for like a funeral he's like i'm so another one then <laughs> If that wasn't enough, Jess. Nope. Without Gotta add more. <laughs> motorcycle, jumping out of a plane, hand-to-hand combat sequence, long-running sequence. Then let's have Tom Cruise hang from an helicopter at first. He did that part. <laughs> climbs the rope to get on the second helicopter and then has to crash that helicopter into another helicopter, which obviously the crashing they had to, you know, wasn't real. But him... Flying that helicopter? That's Tom. <laughs> oh my! I didn't realize that. I should have clocked that. That he actually was flying a goddamn helicopter. <laughs> my God! And like, literally, like you describing it word for word sounds so insane and so cheesy, uh-huh. but it's so good. It works so well. Yeah. Like, I don't care what it sounds like. It's great. Yeah. Which I even loved the another comedic moment. Is you know he's got uh, Simon Pegg on the earpiece, and um, so yeah he's in a helicopter and he's riding after Henry Cavill in the other helicopter going for the detonator of the bomb, and Simon Pegg's like all right so how are we gonna get the detonator he's like well I'm in a helicopter he's like and where's where's Walker but he's in the other helicopter he's like, well how are you gonna get from one helicopter to the other he's like I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. He's just trying to make it work, and it's the fact that like Ethan is like improving this stuff and like figuring it out. Um, uh, there's even like a part where like he's trying to ram it, and like Henry Cavill's like, "Oh my god, he's trying to ram us!" <laughs> like even Ethan Hunt's character is insane, just like Tom Cruise is. Like there's a moment where he's running after the helicopter and he's like going to climb and Rebecca Ferguson's like, what is he doing? And Simon Pegg is like, it's fine. I find it best not to look. <laughs> it's just the fact that he's piloting this fucking helicopter and then there's a hand-to-hand combat sequence with him and Henry Cavill on the side of a mountain while they're disarming two different bombs. It's like, what the actual fuck (laughs) seriously and it is kind of mind-boggling to think that after all of this the most serious injury he had was like he kind of messed up his leg and needed to rest for a few weeks (laughs) that's insane i would be dead if i had to do any of that one of those things i'd be gone and just him doing like what and it's what's so interesting and what i'm so excited for is like what else can we do? We I feel like he's done so much. He's done a building. He's done a plane. He's done a helicopter. Like, is he gonna flying fall and from hanging a off the helicopter? <laughs> flying, hanging off, jumping. Like, what can he do? Like, I don't understand. It's so high octane, but at the <laughs> same time, it's like I very much enjoy that for four through six they start to take the action like a little less seriously and make fun of it. But for some reason, at the same time, it's way more serious in the first three, if that makes any sense. Like the stakes are so high and we're kind of giggling at it, but we're also really into it at the same exact moment. So you joked 
But I think there is plans or talks for one of these movies for Tom to go to space. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not joking. Like it, like I don't know if it'll get cleared or if it'll actually happen, but he may go to space for our entertainment. Because um. he loves movies so much, he's like, "Yeah, I'll try it. Yeah, why not? All right." Like, what? guys, just describing what? all of the action sequences for this movie alone. Um, and I, somehow I, my mind's kind of like actually mushy just thinking about all of them right now. Well, it, it, it's like it's so intense during it. And that's why I think I love the score, too. It was just like so thrilling. So like now I've seen Fallout in particular, uh, I think th- three times fully through um, once in the theater. This is the only other Mission Possible movie I saw in theater. Uh, it was actually the last movie that worked on my movie pass card. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Throwback. Which, like, that's when everyone's crashed. Um, and, like, I think the theater was just like, fuck it, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> and didn't work after that. Uh, but, yeah, it was thrilling in theaters. Then I bought it and I watched it, uh, like, uh, at least, you know, twice for this podcast. Whew, it is so much fucking fun. Um, I'm pretty sure I put it on like in my top 10 for the 2010s. Um, and obviously this was my favorite of 2018, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I... And and I think some people think when you throw this out there that it's just like exaggerating or you're excited or whatever. But no, guys, I think the fact that they also strung a pretty good plot performances and all these action sequences together. I think that Mission Impossible Fallout is one of the best action movies ever. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And had I not seen it, I probably thought you would you were being like overdramatic because like you really... It's something you really have to see to fully get. And I think you do need to have the relationship with almost the entire series to understand how they got there as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, It's interesting, though, like going into this and like knowing I was going to watch all the Mission Impossible movies, I did not think I would enjoy them nearly as much as I did. Just because I just thought it was going to be a typical james bondy like same old same old situation Mm -hmm. but it's not it's and each one tops itself and this one just feels like i like i said i don't know where we go from here because it feels like this is the top right now of the franchise it's the best i think yeah how do we get better like that's if they get better i'm my mind's gonna be blown truly yeah and i think that's the only thing which is funny because like how many movies, like we talked about, like the reason why I, I, I like originally brought up this idea of watching through this franchise in particular was no franchise has gotten better in time. Like think about how many franchises that when there's like over 20 to 25 years of like time span from like start to like most current that they're usually worse you know like how many for example like comedy movies like they make one and then like 10 or 15 years later they try to do a sequel that isn't loved you know like like think about like for example like uh i know it's not like action but like they made anchorman in like oh three and then they tried to make anchorman 2 like 10 years later 
bad. You know, mm-hmm. um, so many action movies do it as well, where like by the second or third movie, it's getting worse. I mean, we even saw it with Dark Knight Rises. You know, we saw it um, hasn't quite happened in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I just think that it's mind boggling that not only has it not gotten worse, but it's gotten significantly better, uh, which I think the main problem that this franchise has is not, oh, will it get worse? Uh, it's like, like, can it top itself? Because like the top just like you keep thinking they're hitting like a glass ceiling of like, all right, they can't top that. And then they do that. OK, well, they can't top that. OK, OK, you can't top that unless Tom actually dies. And then like we're going to go see what happened to got to get him killed. He probably has it in his thing. Like if I die finish the goddamn movie and put it out. Oh, absolutely. He loves movies so much. (laughs) Like, you're right. Like, it's with the exception of Mission Impossible 2, which is bad, but also a product of the time. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what action movies were then. Yeah. Other than that, like, they get better with each one. There's not really a lull besides two, I guess. But, like, if you think about, like, X-Men... And how long that franchise was and how good it was. And then it got bad, but then it kind of got good again. And then it got really bad. Like there hasn't been that kind of trajectory. It's just been upward with Mission Impossible. So it's almost literally impossible to <laughs> where it's going to go from here and what they could even possibly do. Yeah. I just, I don't think you can. I think it's just like, you got to wait and see. And if it's not... If it's not as good as seven, it doesn't mean, or it's, if it's not, I'm sorry, if seven isn't as good as six, it doesn't mean it's going to be bad. It just means six is so good. Yeah, like, exactly. How do you top that? Um, like you said, I think the, what we realized as we've kind of gone through these, you know, two episodes, uh, breaking down every movie, like you said, second one is bad, but it, it it's also because like. It would they the director tried to make the movie more his style and they didn't know what the style of the franchise was, and then like JJ came in, um, with ironically his like directorial film debut, um, brought the franchise to where uh, like hey this is I think it should be more like this and then Brad Bird's like okay I like what you did here I think we can do it like this it's like okay getting better. And then Christopher McQuarrie is like, all right, I like what you guys did, but I'm also going to fill in a little bit of this. And then Tom is like, <laughs> while you guys are doing all this, I'm going to keep upping the action. And it just like this formula to, um, you know, some people like, oh, I think three's still one of the best. It's like you're just talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman's villain character. But when you actually look at the movies themselves, not just the ac- action sequences, it literally gets better. And like, I think, uh, I mean, I won't try to speak for you, but like, without a doubt, to me, it goes two, then one, then three, then four, five, six. But four, five, six, I can not fault anyone for intermingling some of those. But to, to me, for sure, six is without a doubt the best. Um, I think yeah. I think it has an incredible villain that um, they have both the uh, smarts of Solomon Lane, but then the physical villain with Henry Cavill. So they have like both. Um, the sequences are batshit crazy. 
Yeah. It just truly. puts together all the stuff that worked with the previous two. And whew, it's so much fun. I, I almost want to watch it right now. <laughs> I know, I'm just thinking that. Like I kinda wanna watch it. Alright, we're gonna cause... we're gonna do like a live commentary, <laughs> Jess and I watching Fallout. <laughs> and it's just gonna be like my notes where it's like a lot of yelling about really dumb things. <laughs> really dumb things. I also wrote um I don't even know what I meant by this, but I said, crazy Cavill kill. And then I wrote Cavill twist and then another twist. So many twists. Like, I just, <laughs> my notes were insane. I don't, I don't even know. Yeah. No. Um, and then I, said, I wrote the hospital room reveal. I don't even know what that was. Oh, okay. So what they did with that was towards the beginning. Um, and like, maybe you can, in editing, put this earlier on in our review. Um, there was a sequence where, a guy wakes up in the hospital. He's one of the villain who's like part of the apostles and they're trying to get more info on the bomb. And on the news, on the news, it shows that the bombs went off and he's like, what do you remember from the accident? He's like, Oh, I don't know. He's like, well, it's been two weeks and like this happened and like, we need this info. And he gives the info and like, he's like, well, I'll only do it if you share my manifesto on uh, the news. And so like the news reporter starts reading it. He gives the info only to reveal it's Simon Pegg in a mask. And they like open all the doors. Like it's not a hospital room, but he's like, yeah, it hasn't been two weeks. It's been two hours, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Now I, t- yeah, that was really awesome. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if you just want to put that earlier on in the review. Um, but uh, yeah, Jess, um, do you agree? What, what is your final ranking for the six films you've seen so far? Okay, yeah, so from worst to best, I would have to say two, one, three, four, five, six. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, it's just so simple how that kind of falls into place. <laughs> um, I will say, like, my personal opinion is that I still find Philip Seymour Hoffman to have been the most intriguing villain to watch um, out of everyone, but that doesn't mean it's, like, like it's there's nothing it doesn't mean like the other villains as the franchise continues has something wrong with them i think it's just because it's him and i think he's just so wonderful in everything he does yeah that it's almost like you're not gonna you're not gonna top him in my opinion but you're right it's fun to play around with the different villain roles like like in this one in six we had two villains the the brains and the brawn kind of situation mm-hmm. and that was cool but to me is philip seymour hoffman's probably the best still yeah um which is why three is like solidly in the middle because it's just on its own fine but with him it's really good absolutely and i yeah i could understand if anyone wants to put him at the top for villains for the franchise but i just my thing is just because he's the best villain doesn't mean it's the best movie um, oh, yeah, but I, sure. I I appreciate three so much because it's what helped put the series back on track. And then Brad Bird really put it on track. And then Christopher McQuarrie just came and like put on the finishing touches to like make some masterpieces. Um, so I will just give out a little information on what is known so far for Mission Impossible 7. So their plan was to shoot seven and eight kind of back to back. Um which, you know, I don't think had been done before. I think five and six were like same crew and stuff, but I don't think they were like literally back to back. I think seven and eight, they're shooting very close together. Um, so 
Uh, obviously, Tom Cruise is coming back. Um, he'll be in his 60s by the time these ones come out. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I right? Yeah, wait. No, he was 56 in 2018. Um, it's 2020 right now, so he's 58. And yeah, if it comes out in a year or two, um, he may be 60, uh, <laughs> depending on when wow. they get the filming finished. But he's coming back. Ving Rames is coming back. Uh, Simon Pegg's coming back. Rebecca Ferguson's coming back. Vanessa Kirby's coming back. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, and um, <laughs> a couple of new people that they've announced. Uh, oh, and another guy, Henry Zerny, who he was really only in a couple scenes in the first one, but apparently he's coming back, and everyone's like, oh, he's back. It's like, yeah, who cares? Um, yeah, I don't remember him. Uh, one person I'm really excited that's in Seven, Haley Atwell. Uh, oh, okay. I haven't. I feel like I haven't heard her name in a long time. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, she's uh, Agent Carter in the Marvel franchise. Um, yeah, she's coming, and I don't know if she's going to be a villain or if she's going to be, you know, on the team. But uh, I'd be pretty interested in her being the villain. Um, and then also uh, Pom uh, Clementif, uh, who she's known as to some people, like she's Mantis in guardians of the galaxy volume two in the avengers movie um so she's also coming to the franchise and uh yeah so uh last i heard yeah they were in the middle of shooting um uh when obviously covid 19 happened and they had to uh do a filming shutdown um they i think are trying to do some filming in some other countries like social distance wise but it's not you know finalized as far as where the shooting's at um there's apparently a controversy where they were trying to shoot a sequence by this like really historic bridge in poland um but uh yeah so currently as we're recording this episode it is scheduled to be released november 2021 um but obviously we're not sure when that actually will be coming to theaters um, this is one I really hope that comes to a big screening and I can go see it safely because after seeing Fallout, it's like, I want to see all these movies in theaters as much as I can because yeah, there's so much Now fun. I do too. I didn't see a single one in theaters, so it would be cool to experience that. However, I, I can wait until things are safe. But For sure. We'll see. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is we can't get too excited and we, we just have to kind of wait and see what's going to happen. Um but I'm very curious as to where it goes. And I'm also curious, like, is Jeremy Renner's character just, like, done now? Um, He hasn't been confirmed for the next one. But I think it's more so uh, what his shooting schedule is. Because he was going to be... Let's see... Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know if he just decided to step away from the franchise or if, depending on when shooting was, if he was working on something else. But, uh, yeah, and like I said, Christopher McQuarrie, who directed uh, 5 and 6, he'll be directing 7 and 8. Exciting. We'll see We'll see what happens. Maybe he goes to space. Yeah, if he goes to space... <laughs> We all have to see it in theaters, guys. Like seriously, seriously, um, yeah. So that is uh, the Mission Impossible franchise, 
guys, if you haven't seen it, I don't know what else we can say to get you to watch it. Like, I think Fallout in particular may be one I try to really get people to watch. Um, really, four, five, six. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, six in particular, because uh, like it's goddamn nuts. Um, every time you think that must be the last action sequence, like there's another one. Well, I will say if you haven't seen Mission Impossible, you should not have listened to either of these episodes. <laughs> because now there's just hell and no, no point, really, truly. But I, yeah, I would say, again, it was really cool coming in as someone who's never seen a single one and really did enjoy all of them, even two. I mean, I enjoy a, a terrible movie, so it was it was fun. Um, and I will say, yeah, I totally agree now that I've seen them all. It's just fun. Like, it's a fun, if you're looking for just, like, a fun action, high-octane movie, go to these first. These are way better than half of the action movies that are out there, I think. Absolutely. Um, I just really enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. Yeah. Uh, Personally, when it comes to action movies, I think you should see, like, these type of movies when it comes to... You know, if you want some just real kick ass, like violent movies, you can see the John Wick movies. If you want some just like kind of more fun for like kids, but uh, you love superheroes, obviously go see like good comic book based movies with like Marvel and such. But like you just want some great action and some fun, entertaining movies, Mission Impossible movies. Absolutely. But uh, yeah. So that has been our rewatch of the Mission Impossible franchise. Uh, Jess, do you want to let them know what are uh, the next couple episodes, uh, what we're doing? I am so excited because I love Halloween season so much. It's probably my favorite time of the year. Maybe only second to Christmas, but I think it's Halloween. Anyway, I'll get back to you on that. Um, <laughs> Because it's Halloween season, we're going to be dipping into some horror, which I am so pumped about because I love the horror franchise. And I I am so pumped about because I love the horror genre. Um, so in two episodes from now, we are going to be talking about the Scream franchise. Mm-hmm. And I could not be more excited. Scream is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, so I'm really excited to do a deep dive and go in on that. Um, so if you're also a horror junkie, definitely follow along. If you haven't seen Scream but you want to, now is the time. They are excellent. Um, so yeah, that's going to be our next franchise deep dive. Very different from Mission Impossible. (laughs) Very different. That's only four movies, so we're going to do it in one episode. So when we get to episode 86, yeah, Scream franchise, I will have to say I've only seen Scream 1 through 3 once each, and that may be around 10 years ago. I remember I was in college. Wow. Um, Wow. And I only saw parts of four, uh, not the full thing. Um, So, yeah, because they are working on a fifth one, correct? They are, which is very exciting. And a lot of the original cast has come back? Pretty much everyone so far. I mean, like, you'll see, like, as much as the original cast as you can get is coming back. Um, (laughs) The alive ones. You know, it's a slasher series, yeah. Um, I am just so excited because it's kind of a reverse Mission Impossible situation where I know this franchise very well. I cycle through this franchise once a year. During Halloween season, mostly. (laughs) Sometimes just for funsies. Um, And like you said, it's been a decade-ish since you've seen the the first three. And the fourth one is excellent. So I'm very excited to get our different takes 
uh, and our perspectives on it. And I, I'm just so excited. Uh, like I said, I watch them every year. So just another excuse to watch it. I'm so excited for it. Yeah. So as October was going on, you were watching horror movies. Join us along watching the Scream franchise. And then uh, next episode, 85, uh, we're going to be talking about some of the worst uh, horror uh, movie monsters slash villains. Yes, that'll be really exciting, too, because a lot of the best ones, like our Freddies and our Jasons, they get all the attention, but there's some real rough rough villains out there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right, Jess, well, as always, um, let's finish it off. Where can can they find you on social media? On Instagram and on Twitter, I am at JessQuaz, J-E-S-S-K-W-A-Z-Z, JessQuaz. Yeah, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Brandon Prosec. Um, And please, when it comes to Entertainment Buffet, check out our YouTube. Um, If you're not listening to us uh, on YouTube currently, go check out YouTube. We have tons of other podcasts, sketches, and video content coming in a wide variety of genres and uh, entertainment-related things. So please check out Entertainment Buffet on YouTube. Um, And then as for the Entertainment Buffet podcast, uh, yeah, check us out on the YouTube. Check us out uh, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, um, working on getting on Amazon Music and uh, Anchor and such. You know, So please check us out uh, wherever you're listening to us. Please uh, share, like, um, subscribe, or leave a review. All the things that other podcasts already ask you to do. We'd really appreciate it if you did it for us because it helps other people find us. Exactly. And it also keeps us on our toes and lets us know if we're doing well or not. Yes, so absolutely. Add some spice, you know. Um, absolutely. But uh, this has been uh, the rewatching of the Mission Impossible franchise Our mission so far until they release the next films is complete. We did it. We did it. Six movies. (laughs) Six movies. (laughs) Until next time. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.